As cannabis freedom spread around the U.S. and the world, new, shiny, and expensive brands are being established to conduct the commerce of the cannabis industry. And even though there's a huge amount of business risk to opening a cannabis company, the likelihood that you might catch a case and go to prison is greatly reduced. Though we should pause for a moment to remember that people are still very much going to jail for the plant, and that needs to stop immediately everywhere. But in states with at least a medical cannabis program, you can usually run your cannabis business within the regulatory structure without getting busted. That was certainly not always the case. Folks who have come to cannabis in the last decade or so kind of always have had the expectation that it would be legal in the next few years. But as recently as the 1990s, you could go to very real prison for not a lot of weed, and there was no end in sight. And yet, there have always been those who were studying, breeding, conducting science, and inventing devices for the cultivation and processing of cannabis plants. This global fellowship of botanical experts developed specialty knowledge and traded it amongst themselves while staying in the shadows and just out of reach of the muggles. If you want to learn about cannabis health, business, and technique efficiently and with good cheer, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. We'll send you new podcast episodes as they come out, delivered right to your inbox with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. Also, we're giving away very cool prizes to folks who are signed up to receive the newsletter. There's nothing else you need to do to win except receive that newsletter. So go to shapingfire.com to sign up for the newsletter and be entered into this month's and all future newsletter prize drawings. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I'm your host, Shango Los. Today, my guest is Fritz Chess. Fritz is founder of Eden Labs, maker of some of the most advanced and relied upon cannabis extraction technology. We won't really be talking tech with Fritz today, nor really about the modern Eden Labs company. I invited Fritz to talk about the early days of selling extraction technology in the back of High Times magazine, and what hurdles he had to cross trying to develop extraction tech and connect with customers. Welcome to the show, Fritz. Thank you, Shango. Glad to be here. Yeah, so glad that you share some of your valuable time with us. Let's get right to it. So okay. when you were first selling ethanol extraction equipment, it was in the back of High Times magazine. And in those days, cannabis, of course, was still very much illegal. And yet, and yet High Times was exerting pressure against prohibition simply by existing. So I'm curious, to what degree did it feel like you were getting away with something illegal, being able to advertise your ethanol extractors in the magazine? Well, um, we definitely felt like we were getting away with something because here's how it all happened. Um, you know, before, before us and Eden Labs, way back in the 70s, there was uh, the ISO 2 extractor. It was made by a guy named DJ Gold. So I wanted to give him some, some props, first of all. But second of all, we, we, I, we studied what happened with him. And, you know, he was openly advertising it as a way of extracting uh, cannabis and peyote buttons were two of his main focuses. And so the DEA shut him down fairly quick. And um, we talked to a lawyer and... Basically, he said, you have to have a disclaimer that uh, that it's not for illegal use. So we turned that into a tongue-in-cheek marketing pitch. <laughs> so the picture in High Times showed our original little cold finger home unit, and up at the top it said, warning, not intended for illegal use. 
which was a roundabout way of saying, hey, you can make ash oil with this thing. Yeah. <laughs> and everybody got it. And they started selling pretty well right away. And um, none of this was my idea. I had a, a friend, someone I'm still good friends with, who already was selling. He he was the one that developed the products for passing the urine tests, a company mm-hmm. called Clear Choice. And he approached me. Uh, first, he asked me for one of these extractors because you know he knew I had one. And I made him one. And then he said, you know, if you can you make these, I can sell them. And I'm like, yeah, I can make them. And and I was like, you think there's a market for herbal extractors? And he said, well, let's find out. And so he had me make 10 of them and he put that ad in and, you know, there was no looking back. They immediately started selling really well. Yeah, no surprise there. I mean, that technology probably blew people's minds that that it was going to be uh, so easy to to uh, extract the oil. Do you remember how much the original price point was? I think that little home unit sold for like $150 back then. And um, the one unit we still make now that we came out with shortly after the home unit, we called it the professional six liter. You know, it started out at $900. It's it's $3,600 now. I mean, glass glass and glass blower pricing has gone way, way up. And I, I never really was marking it up quite enough back then to begin with. So, so your buddy comes to you and he says, Hey, you've got these extractors. Let's see if there's a market for them. Why did you have the extractor already? I mean, were you, were you making these in your garage, like R and D style because you were doing your own extractions or were you already in a related business, but you just weren't selling to cannabis folk? So what actually started the company, I mean, I was, I was making various kinds of herbal extracts and including cannabis, but basically just the super old school method of grinding some herb, putting it in a jar, you know, like a spaghetti jar or something and with alcohol or vodka and shaking it up and straining it off in a funnel and, um, you know, cooking out the, the alcohol. I had like a crude still that I used. And, uh, so yeah, I just made them for myself. And, and the reason I, started making extractors is because the one herb I wanted to work with kava kava was extremely difficult to extract. It would just not extract putting it in jars of, you know, ethanol or vodka. And so I came up with this distillation method and and that worked really well for the kava. And so there wouldn't even be an Eden labs if it wasn't for kava kava because cannabis was easy. You know, you just put it in a jar with some alcohol and shake it up and of course, we didn't realize how easy it was back then. You know, we were still shaking it for days on end when really all I had to do was pour it in there and shake it up. You know, it was pretty much done. So so what year are we talking about here? 1994. 1994, right on. So, <clears throat> so you know, High Times Magazine has always been kind of like a, you know, counterculture bastion, and they provide a lot of cover for a lot of folks um, with their own legal department, um, was was High Times very open to you know um, you know kind of sharing that umbrella protection that was provided by their by their legal team for a certain extent, or or were they very much you know we're giving you a place to market your mostly illegal goods so you really owe us like I guess what I'm trying to get at you know were were they easy to work with back in the day were they were they trying to encourage uh, your sales. Um, well, first of all, I didn't deal with High Times. It was it was that friend, Laith Haddad, who he was the one that marketed those through High Times. So I was wholesaling them to him. I did have, you know, 
a, a website very early on. I think by 96, I had a website and we were selling them here and there, but that was mostly kava industry. The kava had really was, uh, you know, a hot herb yeah. in the mid and late nineties. And, um, so I was mostly dealing with kava stuff. Lath was handling the cannabis, but I think high times was pretty easy for him to get along with because he was doing giant full page ads. <laughs> they um, they like working with, they like people who are making them money. <laughs> but one thing they wouldn't do is, you know, we kept badgering them to do an article about our extractors and they just wouldn't do it. And I think it was because of liability and what happened with uh, DJ Gold back in the seventies. But eventually, um oh, crap, I can't think of his name. Oh, Ed Rosenthal. Eventually, Ed called me outside, you know, of High Times, having nothing to do with High Times, and he bought what we call the four-liter apothecarian, which we still sell. And and uh, then he and I went over on the phone. Like, you know, I taught him how to carbon filter to get the green out, and you know, so Ed was using it. Uh, that was in the '90s, like probably '96. So, you know, you must have been pretty excited slash startled when the ad ran and then the orders started coming in were did were they like jumping out of your workshop as as soon as the ad ran well i mean the ad was in there every month probably from 96 till bush got elected and i shut it down i said uh, we we can't be advertising and had high times with this new regime which Actually, uh, you know, Michael Kennedy, who owned High Times, I talked to him maybe five years ago at a cannabis cup, and he told me that I did the right thing because uh, a lot of people, you know, got raided real quick once uh, they started that operation. I forget what it was. The, yeah, I can't think of the name, but it was Operation something or other where they were raiding everybody that was advertising in High Times. And so I feel like I got out of there in the nick of time. Yeah, that's, that sounds like a, a smart place. So, so before you got out, I would have yeah, thought that the, you know, those of you who were advertising in high times were kind of like in a secret club, right? Because, um, you know, there was pretty much nowhere else in the country that you could get away with advertising like that. And all of you were in it, you know, selling items that were, for example, for tobacco use only, or, or as your, as yours was, you know, definitely not for illegal cannabis extraction. Um, it kind of, I would think it set up like a a secret club of you folks who were, who were doing this. Did you, did, was there camaraderie between the advertisers who were, who were pulling this hustle or were you all just kind of like working in your own worlds? Well, Lath probably knew a lot more of those people than I did. I only knew one guy and he was, actually in Columbus, Ohio, where I lived at the time. And he sold, you know, glass pipes and bongs and he didn't pull his ad and they came after him. He barely escaped and he went to Taiwan and he didn't come back till Obama got elected. (laughs) So, so, so it's interesting that you'd say, okay, we, we pulled our ad right as uh, the Bush regime came in. Um, it's it's odd though that they did not go to old issues and find your ad and then raid you. That's that, that did did you ever get contacted at all by law enforcement at any time? Um Lath had a he had some some kind of inquiry from the DEA at one point cuz someone got raided. Um 
but you know they didn't really give him a hard time they just i don't remember you know it was back in the 90s i don't remember exactly what they wanted to know but it was but it was pretty innocuous i was kind of surprised they didn't they didn't make any big deal about it at all so you were you were doing these other extractions uh for kava kava and and other things um, were any of your other extractions, um, you know, potentially running into legal issue as well? Like, like you mentioned, uh, DJ gold was doing peyote button extraction and, uh, were, you know, Kava Kava is legal, even though, you know, it certainly has got some, I don't know, let's call them medical properties, but were you extracting, um, other controlled substances as well or just cannabis? Well, yeah, there were lots of things. I don't, I don't really want to go into all of that, but, uh, you know, let your imagination run wild. Sure, sure. Where I was going with that, though, is, um, you know, we imagine that there's kind of like an international club of of people who are experts in their field. And, and it sounds like at that time you were probably an expert in the field, um, certainly on the forefront of it. And I wondered if other people from, you know, who were developing their own extractors or from other countries who were trying to solve extraction problems was the, you know, in a, in an internet world, this all became very, very easy for us. Right. But in the, in those days you had to, you know, either write letters or travel to each other. Um, did people reach out to you because they wanted to connect with you for your expertise? Oh, uh, sure. And, you know, and when it came to, to cannabis, there was, you know, before Bush, when, when Clinton was still president, I would say that San Francisco was the epicenter of the whole, you know, cannabis processing and new cannabis innovation. And we put, we put all kinds of extractors and not the very first dispensary that was Dennis Perone and his didn't last too long. But, uh, the very second one was on market street in San Francisco. And, you know, that was the second dispensary. And we had, you know, uh, uh an older version of the ethanol uh, extractor distiller that we sell to this day. And my very first CO2 unit that we ever built, uh, he rented it for a little while and we, we used it there and that was the first time I'd ever put, you know, good quality product in it. And, you know, in Ohio, basically I'd give people to give me bags of leaf and, you know, obviously it wasn't as good a quality as what came out from Primo buds coming down to the Bay from Humboldt. Were people even thinking about doing whole plant extractions at that point? I mean, in, in my mind, and certainly I don't, I don't go back as far as you do, but in my mind, uh, you know, people have just been using, trim for extraction until just about, you know, four or five years ago when, when the prices dropped and people realized how much better extractions were from, from, you know, doing nug runs versus doing trim runs where, did you actually have people back in the, in the mid late nineties who were doing full flower runs? We did full flower in the CO2 unit at that, uh, at that shop and on market street. I don't remember what the name of it was, but, uh, Typically, you know, everybody was just doing, you know, sometimes it wasn't even trim. It was just like fan leaves. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, obviously it was pretty low quality stuff and, and nobody knew what waxes were and there was no analytics. None of that existed. But I, I did figure out how to carbon filter early on and, you know, at least getting the chlorophyll out. That was a big innovation at that time because I don't know if you've ever smoked that old school Jamaican hash oil that was blackish green. But, uh, whew. 
Yeah. You, can imagine, you can imagine what that tasted like. Yeah, that stuff was really bitter because there were so many fan leaves, right? So you're getting you're getting a lot of other stuff. Actually, it it, it got my attention when you said that you uh, you taught um, Ed how to filter uh, through carbon to get rid of the chlorophyll. That would clean up a lot of people's product right there. Well, that was a major step right there, and you know it wasn't for some years later that we realized that we could drop waxes out just. You know, when it came out of the cold finger extractor, it was a tincture. And you have to carbon filter first and get rid of chlorophyll. For some reason, wax won't drop out when there's still chlorophyll in there. But, you know, then we, we figured out after a while. The, you know, part of it was us figuring it out, and there were other people. Um, and we figured out we could just put that in the freezer for a little while and drop that wax out and then really bring out the, the flavor a lot better. Mm-hmm. So at this time, you know, you were working with your business partner and you were feeding him extractors uh, to sell through the magazine. And, but you were also having these other extractors for various other herbs. Were you, um, you know, were you take, were you going to, to, to trade shows? Clearly they weren't cannabis trade shows yet, but did you go to herbalist trade shows and, and you were bringing this gear out? Yeah, the the Natural Products Show, which is uh, in Anaheim every March, uh, we used to we used to do that show a lot. So um, you probably know where I'm going with this. When you're at these shows, there are probably people who who you know maybe they were doing lavender for their business, but at home they had a little home grow. Did you get people coming up to you at the shows with a nod, nod, wink, wink? Could this be used for other things? And and you had to be very careful with that. Yeah, we were pretty discreet about it. Um, probably not as much when Clinton was president. I didn't worry about it too much. I mean, obviously, I was a lot more careful than now. But uh, when 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 Bush got elected, it was don't ask, don't tell. I mean, if if someone, we, it was real typical back then for someone from California to call up and just start running their mouths, basically say it's legal here. We're you know we're licensed. We can we can do this, and they'd start talking about, it and I'd say. No, it's, you know, I'm in Ohio. It's federally illegal. Um, you know, if you were calling me up, I'd hint strongly. I'd say, like, if you were calling me up about extracting some ginseng, I'd be happy to talk to you, but I, I can't help you, you know, with the cannabis. Right. So, I mean, it was basically like, duh, you know, don't be stupid. You know, maybe you want to call me back. And, you know, I'm pretty sure some of them did. But, yeah, it was definitely a don't ask, don't tell policy till, uh Basically, till after Obama got elected and Holder had that press conference in 2010, then, the, you know, the, the Pandora's box opened. Sure. That reminds me a lot of back when I was in college and we would go to head shops and, you know, the signs would say for tobacco use only. And so you'd be asking for something and you had to be very careful what you asked the, the employees for, because if you used any of their key words... Um, they'd say, sorry, you have to go, you know? And oh yeah. So, and they'd get, and they'd get real shitty about it too. Yeah, totally. They throw you out. <laughs> right. Cause you're put that, you know, they were, you were putting them at risk and pissing them off. So, so yeah, that's kind of interesting. So people think of those little glass bowls with the stem off as a crack pipe, but really they were a hash oil pipe is, you know, crack didn't come out to the early eighties, but there was always the hash oil pipes in the head shops, you know, they, they weren't common, but I had to tell people to ask for the tobacco oil pipe, oh. and which was a new phrase. But most of the head shops got it right away. 
because there there'd always been the like I said that nasty Jamaican hash oil that came around you know starting way back in the seventies, and then there were a few people you know making hash oil with uh, DJ Gold's instruments. So I'm trying to picture this utensil that you're describing. It was it was it kind of like a glass spoon that you would light with a butane lighter from the bottom so that the flame did not actually come in contact with the hash. Yeah, so it was more like a glass fish bowl with an open hole in the top and a stem that came off. And so you'd drip the oil down in there, and then you'd hold a lighter to the underside and smoke it, you know, the same way people smoke crack. Yeah, but exactly. Like I said, it's not really a crack pipe. It was a, it was an oil pipe. That's where it all started. Huh, right on. So, um, so when you would go to these trade shows uh, and you were selling to these, um, these, these other types of herbalists, uh, did you find that you started selling these to people who were using them for cannabis more than you were selling them to people for regular herbs? I'm trying to get an idea of of how many people may or how significant the number of people who were buying your product for its cannabis purpose versus, you know, a traditional herbal purpose. Well, one of my original sponsors or backers was a guy here in Seattle who, you know, he was a big kava importer, of course, going back to that. And so he was in the natural products industry and he was friends. I'd never met people like this, you know, hippies that were multimillionaire business people. And, and most of that, those, those natural product companies or herbal companies, you know, were started with the proceeds from you know, cannabis importation. So all of these guys were super familiar and, and they all got high, but you know, their, their businesses were selling medicinal herbs. And so, yeah, all his friends bought these units and I'm pretty sure they were mostly just doing hash oil with it. But, um, you know, people were kind of secretive back then and they didn't know me. So I, I didn't, hear a whole lot about it but yeah that was my impression yeah that was actually a pretty nice setup you had where you got to uh build the machine which was your passion and then and then have your your friend be more the face of the company uh which gave you an extra level of security while you were still able to you know not only make the profit but have your hand in the cannabis scene which um, you know, even though it was dangerous, there it also was a you know kind of a rite of passage to be a bit of an outlaw back in the day, and that's cool. Yeah, that, uh, yeah, everything you said is is true. And, and and getting back to to the culture and you know people reaching out. Um, by the time Bush got elected, the whole epicenter shifted to Vancouver, and that same friend had a condo in Vancouver, so. He and I got kind of initiated into the, the VIP area upstairs above Blunt Brothers. I don't know if anybody listening is going to remember Blunt <laughs> Brothers, but it was a it was kind of an Amsterdam-style coffee shop in Vancouver back then, and uh, you could smoke in there, and they had coffee and uh, sandwiches. And so upstairs was kind of where, you know, the Illuminati of the cannabis <laughs> industry often hung out. And so I was meeting big growers and exporters and importers and people that were innovating, you know, with extractions and stuff. That was, you know, the early two thousands or, you know, from, from basically from like 99 on. Um, and then they got Stephen Harper and we got Obama. So everything shifted back to here. Yeah, right on. So I'm going to ask you more questions about that, that international cannabis Illuminati, but let's go ahead and take our first short break and be right back. You're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Fritz Chest, founder of Eden Labs. 
Now that the health benefits of terpenes have become well known in the cannabis industry, people everywhere are looking for the purest terpenes and custom terpene blends. True terpenes, isolated terpenes and terpene blends are tested to the most demanding worldwide safety and stability standards. Terpenes from true terpenes are third-party tested, non-GMO, and food grade. They're triple distilled, making them the purest terpenes available in the world. With over a thousand terpene isolates, strain profiles, and terp flavors, you can be sure that true terpenes will have the perfect aromatics for your manufacturing goals. True Terpenes also offers custom blending so that you can match your company's marquee strains across all your product categories. While you can certainly simply just order terpenes and go right to manufacturing, True Terpenes also offers a wealth of manufacturing insight, best practices, and a willingness to help you break new ground with your product formulations. True Terpenes has robust and supportive customer service too, so your questions will get answered fast and efficiently. If you've shopped for terps before, you know how rare that is. If you are a cannabis product developer, these are the terps that you want to add to your oil or edible or capsule or beverage. True terpenes are simply the best your money can buy. Don't try and make a premium product with substandard terps. Choose true terpenes for a top shelf experience. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash true terpenes to find out more or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Growing cannabis in greenhouses is taking over the cannabis industry. An efficient and effective blend of sunshine-grown terpene profiles and the controlled environment of indoor, greenhouses can be the best of both worlds. For many greenhouse operators, though, building their greenhouse before gaining insight into how cannabis greenhouses differ from ornamental crops can be the start of a world of hurt. Eric Brandstad and his team at Greenhouse Advisory Group have the experience and technical know-how to help you avoid these pitfalls. Eric Brandstad has been helping cannabis growers find locations, design, build, and equip their greenhouses for over a decade, first starting in Northern California, but expanding over the last five years to helping clients throughout the world. He has an impeccable reputation for both depth of knowledge and kindness in communication. You can hear Eric explain some of the challenges facing cannabis greenhouses and how to overcome them in episode number 41 of the Shaping Fire podcast. No matter where I go in the country, good people with smart backgrounds still are making the mistake of building without knowing cannabis, and it causes them to burn through capital and time fast. Everyone has their own failure point. For some, it is improper ventilation planning. For others, it is surface temperatures of the building or the plant's leaves or both. Some folks that build their greenhouse from scratch make really basic errors like placement of the greenhouse on the property or not understanding the natural environment where the greenhouse sits. Some have even built a decent greenhouse but are inefficient in their deployment of light deprivation techniques and never really hit their target yields. It's great when you learn from your mistakes, but it's even better when you learn from the mistakes of others. When you bring on Greenhouse Advisory Group, you will learn from the mistakes of their many clients, and you'll take advantage of the best practices developed by Eric Brandstad over his years of working with clients just like you. From location development to choosing a builder and tricking out your new greenhouse or retrofitting or rescuing your failing greenhouse, Eric will help you through it. Visit greenhouseadvisorygroup.com to learn more and connect with Eric and his team. That's Greenhouse Advisory Group.
Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los. And our guest this week is Fritz Chess, founder of Eden Labs. So before the break, we were talking about the early days of Eden Labs and advertising in High Times Magazine and what it was like to uh, be selling an extractor that could be used for cannabis during serious prohibition days. Well, then things started transitioning with the Obama administration and and the laws started loosening up. Uh, Dennis Perrone uh, was running the Cannabis Buyers Club on Market, which uh, luckily I was able to uh, check out there in 1996. And, and, and people were starting to understand that cannabis had legitimate medical uses and, and things started to loosen up, at least for people who you know were HIV positive and for people who wanted to do R&D. So, so before the break, Fritz, you were talking about how above Blunt Brothers in Vancouver, the, uh, the International Cannabis Illuminati were, were able to get together and talk um, you know, safely and bluntly and, and, and exchange information in ways that we take for granted now due to the internet. But in those days, you actually still had to physically get together. You know, as somebody who was an you know a, an extraction engineer like yourself, and you're meeting these international cannabis players, did folks start to consult you or rec- you know try to recruit you to, for example, go to Amsterdam and and build out machines or something? Were people trying to to uh, involve your expertise? Well, there was a lot of talk of me moving to Vancouver and setting up an operation there. And, and I actually came very close to doing that. Um, I think the only the, the only reason it didn't happen because all of a sudden I got a a giant project building multiple CO2 extractors for some scientists down in California, and that just kind of kept me in Ohio. And then one thing led to another. I never did move to Vancouver, but yeah, it was at one point it was all arranged. I had growers that were going to give me trim. I had a place to set up. You know, I had Blunt Brothers that it was all going to move through. So, yeah, I was I came very close to moving to Vancouver and just being one of the earliest, you know, large scale hash oil makers. Um, it sounds like even though you weren't actually making the oil yourself, it sounds like you still, even though you moved back to the U.S., um, you were still a very serious player. You weren't actually just doing the production. You were actually creating the means of production, though. Just because you moved back to the United States doesn't mean that you gave up your hand on the game. No, I, I was doing then what I'm doing now is, you know, I run the R&D department at Eden Labs and that's kind of what I was doing. So I was always doing extractions and trying new stuff, but I wasn't doing, you know, toll processing for people, so to speak. Mm-hmm. So um, as, as kind of a sidebar, I want to talk about the vocabulary that's been used historically. Um, you know, uh, nowadays, uh, a lot of people like to use the term EHO, ethanol hash oil, but but a lot of people don't even know what EHO is. And so most of us still use the shorthand for RSO, Rick Simpson oil, uh, just because people know what that means. And and even though Rick Simpson wasn't the person who first did these types of extractions, he's certainly one of the people who made it more popular. So so going back to the the you know the the early to mid 90s when you were bringing these first extractors to market, what was the vocabulary people were using to ref, refer to a a clean uh, essentially a hash oil. And, and how did you see, if at all, that vocabulary change over the years? 
Well, it was just simply called hash oil, and there weren't a lot of options or a lot of, you know, there weren't all the different manifestations or varieties that you have now. I mean, it was almost all alcohol extracts that were carbon filtered and just put in little vials. And, you know, in the early days, the main market was deadheads. Nobody else was interested in hash oil, but the deadhead community and those who traveled following the dead, they loved it. Um, You know, and then the BHO came along very soon after I started doing the cold fingers, that was kind of really, that was really started. I don't know who invented it, but the guys who popularized it was a psilocybe fanaticus that were down out of Olympia. And they, they developed uh, the easy method of growing shrooms and they had the original, you know, BHO, you know, blaster units that they, they sold out of high times. But you know, they didn't last all that long because not only were they advertising, you know, those things at a high times, but they were making mass amounts of hash oil and growing many, many pounds of shrooms openly. And they got in a lot of trouble and they might still be in prison. I'm not sure. That's interesting that the, the first units that were being sold were were open blasting and and not closed loop at all. I mean, my God, talk about a dangerous product in the wrong hands. Jeez. Yeah, and of course there was there was them, and then the the honeybee came out, which I think oddly is still around. But uh, the honeybee was kind of the main instrument that people started, you know, buying to do hash oil. You know, you saw those in head shops way back in the '90s. So with it, with the name of that product being the honeybee, it kind of speaks back to my question about vocabulary. Um, was was the term honey oil being used to refer to the the ethanol hash oil as well? Yeah, it was. Um, and there were people who argued that point way back then because uh, the honey oil was was supposed to be really top-notch stuff. And um, honestly, the, the best hash oil I ever saw, like way back in the day, <laughs> it was crazy. I knew this guy in college who got on a plane, flew to Nepal, bought tons of hash oil, stuffed it in condoms, swallowed him, came back to campus, you know, you can, you know how he got him back out. Yeah. And then that, and that stuff was all over campus for like a month and it was this beautiful pinkish red color. And then I'm pretty sure it was actually extracted from high quality hash, probably with ether, um, which is, you know, an older method that I don't think too many people do anymore, but that was the true, that was the true honey oil. You weren't going to make a product like that extracting fan leaves with ethanol. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. And that 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 person who flew to Nepal was probably a superhero on campus there for a while. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it, it it obviously had a big influence on me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when 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 you can when you can get the the oil straight and not have to smoke the plant material as well, it's a it's a really different experience. And it's interesting too that you would mention that the the oil kind of traveled with a deadhead family too. I'm a, I'm a deadhead and, and, and followed there in the, you know, the mid nineties for a few years. And that's the only place that I ever saw it. And so, um, you know, when we toured, you would run into it in the parking lot pretty regularly. But um, where I went to school in Indianapolis at Butler University, it only ever, you, you only ever really saw it in Indianapolis 
uh, in my circles anyway, was right after shows at Deer Creek, right? So everybody yep. would go to the shows and, and you'd buy some and then you'd have it. And then, you know, it was all gone in two weeks. But if, but if you paid attention, like when the dead came through town, you could get some of these exotic things like, like California kind buds, right? right. Know, back, back in the, back in those days, we were all smoking Mexican brick weed, right? But yep. the stuff would come from California and then eventually it became BC bud. And that, I mean, that was exotic stuff, but it was because it was traveling with heads. Right, exactly. So probably, I mean, some of that hash oil you might have gotten at, at Deer Creek would be from guys I knew who were down at Athens at Ohio University. And a lot of that stuff would, would get unloaded at dead shows at, uh, at Buckeye Lake. Yeah, I've seen some good shows there too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So, do you think that it, it traveled with the Deadheads because the the parking lot market was so easy to work in because the the heads were so happy to buy it or because the extractors themselves were Deadheads? Yeah, I think it was a little bit of both, but um it just seemed like the deadheads were, were hip to it real early on and liked it. And they, they appreciated, you know, how high it got them. Um, one of my tricks back in the early days before anybody even knew what this stuff was is I, you know, I'd, I'd put the oil on the inside of a rolling paper and roll up just a joint of, you know, Mexican, cause that was what was around. And, you know, 10 people would get high on that joint and they'd be just like, what in the world was that? But they, you know, they didn't even know what hash oil was and, you know, they might want to get a little vial of it. But yeah, I, I, back then I always wondered, why aren't people more into extracts? <laughs> Probably just sheer lack of availability. What was the price point like on that stuff? I think, you know, I saw anywhere from 20 to $50 a gram back then, and that would have been you know, just uh, extracted from trimmer, leaf, carbon filtered, ethanol removed. But, you know, obviously plenty of parts per million. Uh, but, you know, there were no analytics and they'd just be in the little glass vials. It's interesting that the uh, the price point has stayed essentially the same. And what has gotten better is the quality. But, but the price point is about the same. It is. Yeah. So um, let's see here. So let, let's... Uh, uh, Kind of as a, a side note, you know, a lot of people when they're talking about RSO, um, they'll they'll talk about how Rick Simpson popularized it, but that you really didn't want to use his method because he encouraged the use of naphtha. And you were in the scene before Rick was popularized, and you're in the scene after Rick was popularized. Do you have anything to share about what it was like to be there as the as as, as Rick and his method became popularized, and then and then people started to move away from it because of the naphtha and choosing ethanol? Um, you know, if you you were there, so if if you have any stories, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I have a short story. I mean, he called me probably you know 99 or 2000 or i don't know exactly but about you know back around then and i kind of admonished him for pushing this naphtha thing and told him he should be using ethanol and i'm not sure what happened after that but it was you know not too long after that that everybody called ethanol extract rso but to my knowledge, he was, if you watched his videos, he was still promoting naphtha, not ethanol. But I, uh, 
I don't know exactly, you know, what the story was with him, but I, you know, my, uh, my knowledge was it was always naphtha, but somehow ethanol extract became RSO. Maybe you can, maybe you know more about it than I do. Um, yeah, I actually, I actually don't. I mean, all I know is just, uh, you know, second, fourth, fifth hand that, uh, you know, the naphtha was popularized because it was a, a good solvent and it was available and you just had to make sure that you purged it properly. Um, but then that, that, that skill and that equipment was so much harder to get that people just naturally moved to ethanol because it was easier to get. Uh, but sure. You know, I, I don't know if that's and, accurate. It just makes so sense. much safer. Right. Right. Exactly. Much safer. So, um, to, to finish up on the kind of international Illuminati thing, um, had you, I mean, other than going to Vancouver, uh, which is certainly another country, had you started traveling internationally at this point to, to meet with other, you know, minds in Amsterdam to talk about technology and, and processes? I, I never did go to Amsterdam. Now, uh, my partner, you know, at the time that I've talked about Leith, he, went to Amsterdam on a number of occasions. And of course, I've, I've been friends with Donnie Wirtschafter. Um, if I, I'm, I'm guessing you know who he is. Oh, yeah, but, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, you know, he and I are both from Ohio. And, uh, you know, he has that, that permaculture preserve down in Belize. I've hung out down there with him for like a month in the jungle. And, you know, I've, I've known him from environmental activism since I was, you know, in my late 20s. And so I... The, the main person I kept in touch with about what the, what the scene was and where it was going was Donnie. Because um, I just see him in Columbus bouncing around town. We had, we had all the same friends. And he really, I mean, he really does have a great a Rolodex of international connections. I mean, he, he would have to have that just to be able to pull together a lot of the artifacts that he keeps. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. Nobody's more connected than Donnie. <laughs> So, um, so right on. So, um, let's go ahead and take our, our second break. And then when we come back, let's talk about, uh, uh, the, 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 ch- the changing of the guard and, and the, the eventual decrease of prohibition. So, okay. um, so we're going to take our short break and be right back. You're listening to shaping fire. And my guest today is Fritz chest founder of Eden labs. As a listener of shaping fire, you already understand the importance of living soil when growing cannabis. When you have active microbe communities in your substrate, you go way beyond simply fertilizing with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium. Having active microorganisms in your substrate supports vigorous plant growth throughout the plant's root zone, making for higher yields and thriving flowers. Mammoth pea is the first organically derived microbial inoculant that focuses on your plant's nutrient cycling processes to release soil phosphorus and other micronutrients from their bound forms, making them more available to the plant. Increased levels of phosphorus will also keep internodes shorter and focus your plant's energy on bud production. Not only that, but the microbes act as a defense shield for the plant's rhizosphere by outcompeting potentially harmful pathogenic microbes. Pretty cool, right? Mammoth pea not only unlocks the nutrients in your soil, but it also helps protect your plant from disease. Mammoth pea's beneficial bacteria act like microbioreactors, continually producing enzymes that release nutrients. Mammoth pea was developed at a U.S. university and has been extensively tested by Colorado growers and independent laboratories. Mammoth pea is proven to increase growth and enhance blooming. One of the great things about supplementing with microorganisms is that they won't compete with whatever fertilizer program you're already running. Simply dose on top of your fertilizer schedule for increased benefits. 
To learn more and to find out where you can buy Mammoth Pea near you, check out their website at www.mammothmicrobes.com. Partner with microorganisms to create beautiful, thriving cannabis. Mammoth Pea. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel with content not found on the podcast? When I attend conventions or speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery, talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile. Nicholas Mahmood on regenerative and polyculture cannabis growing. Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world. Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life. Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. And Jeff Lowenfels on the soil food web. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes and the endocannabinoid system, and even my own presentation on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 100 videos that you can check out for absolutely free. Go to youtube.com forward slash shangolos or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You're listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shangolos, and our guest this week is Fritz Chess, founder of Eden Labs. So before the break, we were just coming up to the changing of the vibe in the United States where uh, you know people were, were surviving the Republican administration. Everyone had scurried back underground after the Clinton years. Um, but that you know change was coming with the um, with the Obama administration and Dennis Perone was making massive changes in California and people were starting to see cannabis in a in a slightly different light than they did with the reefer madness. So 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 Fritz, you know there there must have been a point for you uh, after uh, President Obama came into office where you're all like okay things have changed we can start to expand our services and and change our messaging a little bit to reach out to new people. What was that point for you? Well, it happened very suddenly and kind of unexpectedly. I mean, Holder had that press conference, I think, in 2010, where he said, we're going to let states do what they want to do. And, and I certainly took note of that. But I had no idea how significant that moment was. But uh, what happened was Eden Labs had, had built a fish oil extractor. In particular, it was extracting, you know, omega-3 oils from uh, green lip New Zealand mussels. And these two New Zealand brothers, you know, had this company down in, in Orange County in California. And we had been setting up that extractor. And when we finished, my buddy Fred and I just decided to go to Venice Beach for a few days and, you know, party have fun and when we got up there we were just shocked because it was you know right after that press conference but the response was dramatic i mean there were giant billboards everywhere with pot leaves on it people were just smoking everywhere i mean everywhere you walked around the boardwalk you could smell it they had you know attractive women in bikinis and rollerblades selling medical marijuana cards <laughs> you know right there by muscle beach it was crazy and Back then, my cell phone was the phone number for Eden Labs. And it literally, when we got to Venice Beach, my phone just started ringing like crazy. And we've never looked back. I mean, that's when it really took off was at that moment. So when, when so how fast? So like, so holders talk. So would you say that within a week, your, your phone started to blow up? Was it that fast? Um, 
I would say it, it probably even the next day it started wow. to ring more for that. And we decided pretty quick that it was okay to talk about it now. Um, but that, that, you know, what we're allowed to do and say has always been an evolving process, but you know, we, we quickly segued away from the don't ask, don't tell. And, um, you know, started, start, we, it wasn't a lot of direct marketing, but certainly they come to the website and they call or email and we, we talk about it openly. And, and, uh, up until that point, everybody had just been buying our cold finger, you know, ethanol distiller extractors to make oil, but it, it uh, coinciding with Holder's press conference was all of a sudden everybody wanted CO2 extractors. Hmm. And we just, you know, we went from building one, two or three a year to building, you know, three a month, five a month. All right. So that, that brings up two different questions for me. The first one is, is that, okay, so if, if, you know, Holder makes his statement and you are immediately getting, um, you know, calls, your pivot was from talking about other herbs and inferring cannabis. Did you pivot to a medical, at the time we would have called it medical marijuana language, and you were using medical marijuana language, or were you still not quite up, to, you know, still not up to being that blunt about it? We were pretty blunt about it, and we, we did talk about it, you know, mostly in medical terms for the most part. I mean, Going back, you know, Dennis, you remember Dennis Perone's sure. state statement that all all cannabis use is medical. We kind of went with that philosophy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, in addition to though your your idea that you are you were safer because of Holder's statement at this point, you know, you're you're making some money and and you are about to start to scale for real for the what will become the you know the commercial cannabis industry. Uh, were you you know did you were you lawyered up at this point? Um, yes, we, we had a, we had a great lawyer, uh, back then the best. And he, uh, unfortunately he, he had like a stroke or an aneurysm in the middle of the night in probably 2011. And then he was no longer with us, but, uh, Ian was fantastic and he had great ideas for how to navigate all of this and it all worked out just fine. We, we, we never, nothing ever happened, you know, for us to regret. Right on. That's good. And, and, you know, it's nice too, because the reason why I wanted to ask that is because, um, you know, it's, it's always nice for us to make decisions on our intuition and how we think the politics is going based on what the media is telling us. But at the same time, have a lawyer. Yeah. Yeah. We had a great one. (laughs) Yeah. Excellent. So, uh, so I want to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about the tech itself. And so, um, you know, you had the original cold finger, uh, back there in the, in the early to mid nineties. And it's actually, it made me happy to hear that it's like the same name, you know, cause you still have the cold finger on your website, right? I'm sure that it's evolved over the years, but, um, you know, this was, this was like one of your original kids, if you will. Yeah. Um, uh, I'd like to give you the floor and just like hear you describe how the state of the art of ethanol extraction has evolved from your early days to where it is now. And, and I know that this might be a long answer, but, but I, w- I think that everybody would like to hear it, especially the, the extractors who are bothering to listen. And, you know, if you go over my head, that's perfectly cool. But, but, you know, if somebody were to ask you from your, from your early cold finger machines to the ethanol extractors that you're selling now, what are the, what are the main themes of evolution in the technology that you've developed? Well, of course the big switch, was uh, realizing 
how efficiently cannabis extracted with ultra cold ethanol that, you know, there's a very rapid extraction. And, you know, if you do it right with cold, you don't pull the wax, you pull very little or no chlorophyll, depending on, you know, what you're working with. None of us knew that back then. I, I mean, my joke back then when it was, uh, you know, try to make a cup of tea with cold water, you know, I always believed and, you know, chemists in general all believed that, uh, you know, the solvent needed to at least be, uh, room temperature or warm and you know it was it was the warmer the, the, it was the better it was going to work and you know generally that's that's true but in the case of cannabis it just means you're going to pull a lot of wax and chlorophyll so you know the the original extraction you know going back to the jamaica thing i, I always figured the way they made that was they just throw a bunch of cannabis in a big pot out in the woods and and you know heat it with a fire and in a bunch of rum and, you know, I was in Jamaica a few years ago, and these guys confirmed that that's how they did it. So going from that, you know, the cold finger was able to distill, redistill the same ethanol through a basket of herb over and over again. So you got a much more concentrated uh, batch right out of the beginning. And then you could you could switch it out and put in a collection vessel and then distill the ethanol back out of it all in one machine. So... That was pretty evolved for the time, and you know that's still a very useful method. I mean, to this day, we have contracts making that kava kava for people, and that's still the best method for that because it's very exhaustive, and uh, kava is very difficult to extract. Um, but obviously, that's overkill for cannabis, and you know I laugh about how long we went not realizing that you know we'd have this little unit just distilling and distilling for hours on end, and watching the drips come out of the basket and wait till they ran clear before we figured it was done. And, you know, in reality, it was probably done in the first 10 or 20 minutes. And after that, we were just going hours and hours pulling more, <laughs> to pull more wax and chlorophyll. Um, but, you know, we eventually that was figured out. And, and um, the very earliest uh, that I knew of doing anything cold was actually, you know, there were guys up in Canada in that VIP room at Blunt Brothers, but they talked about doing, it was, it was never ethanol. It was cold isopropyl. And, uh, and I did that and it worked, but I just did not like the idea of using isopropyl any more than I liked the idea of using naphtha. So we were very close to having this all figured out in like, you know, 1999, but it was a, you know, we thought you had to do it cold with isopropyl, not ethanol. So we kind of missed the boat and, you know, another 15 years went by <laughs> or <laughs> Or something like that. So obviously, you know, in the last couple of years, the cold ethanol thing has really caught on. And um, so the way we do it now is, you know, we chill a big chamber of ethanol with a chiller or you can jumpstart it just throwing dry ice in there. And then we pump that and just spray it over a basket, kind of like a giant coffee maker, and then recirculate it for a little while and then pump it off. And, you know, we don't pull any we don't pull any wax and if you're if you're content to not grind it first you won't pull any chlorophyll either but that means you only get 30 pounds in that basket if you grind it you can get 70 pounds and then you're going to pull a little bit of chlorophyll but you know we have these really efficient and you know a lot of people listening are familiar with the lenticular filters and the plate filters and you can just pump everything out of the extractor right through that filter and it comes out you know real pretty on the other side so pulling a little chlorophyll is not a problem 
the wax has always been the problem once everybody realized they wanted to get that out. And, you know, we're, we're still trying to improve the tech on that because cold, cooling giant you know, 100-gallon or 500-gallon chambers of ethanol down to minus 40 C or colder, that's time-consuming. It's very expensive for the, the chillers. It's very expensive on your electric bill. So the holy grail now is to just be able to do this at room-temperature ethanol where you don't have to put any cold or heat on it and then be able to get that wax out with some kind of refining system that's a lot more efficient than having to chill everything. And we're working with some of the biggest refining and filtration companies that work in food and chemical process. We've got like four different projects going at once uh, right now. Um, and we're, we're seeing promise with a few of them, but we, we haven't really hit on anything yet that's, that's going to eliminate the need for those chillers. So it's interesting that you said that, you know, back in the day, things were being done at room temperature and then things got really cold. But to make the cost savings, you're, you're trying to figure out a way to move back to room temperature, but then filter after the fact. My question for you is when doing it at room temperature, you get a, you get a darker product that, that many have called, you know, green lion or green dragon. Right. Yeah. And, and so, and then, and then that evolved to, you know, using cold alcohol in the freezer and, and the, the water in the actual frozen flour material tends to stay in the flour material when it's all frozen. And so you're adding, you know, uh, you know, freezing temperatures, alcohol to actually frozen flour and, and going to do, you know, a couple quick rinses off of it. And, and then you end up with this more of a, uh, this beautiful amber golden tincture instead of the, the like kind of, you know, what I now feel like is kind of the scary and bitter green dragon kind of material. Um, when, when it moved, when the tincture pro or when the, when the extraction process moved to the cold, did that really get rid of a lot of the need for the, the carbon filter at the end because there was so much less uh, chlorophyll in that product? Yeah. D depending on how you do it now, I'll, yeah, like you said, if you can freeze the cannabis along with getting the ethanol cold, that's an ideal way to do it. Uh, but now that people are scaling up huge volumes, especially with hemp. Very few people are actually freezing the cannabis first. They're just taking the cannabis and they're getting the ethanol cold. So it's, you know, it still does a much better job than, you know, warm or room temperature ethanol, but to avoid chlorophyll completely without and not cool the cannabis, you basically have to not grind it, just put whole buds in the basket and then, you know, spray the ethanol over it. And that, that still comes out, you know, a nice golden color. Um, How does using whole flour decrease your yield? I would think that a lot of your trichomes would be tucked on the interior of an unground flour. Well, it certainly washes all the trichomes off, which is, you know, 70 or 80% of it. But there is that, there's those cannabinoids that are bound in a matrix of cellulose and wax down in the plant material. And that's, that's always more stubborn to get out. Um, but the price of cannabis has dropped and it's so abundant that a lot of times people don't care about good yields anymore. They just want good product. 
Yeah, good product and and um, and an efficient, scalable manufacturing process. Yeah. So, so I've got a question for you that I get asked all the time. You know, people ask me how 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 much THC or whole plant cannabinoids can ethanol hold? And I'm not really sure what to tell them because, you know, when, when a patient has talked to me and we're, we're talking about the opposite of scaling here, we're talking about a, a patient who's at home who did their summer grow and now they've got their, you know, ounce or whatever of flour and, and, and they want to make their tincture as potent as possible. And so you'll, you'll, you'll take a, you know, a, a half gallon of, of cold alcohol and you're going to pour it over your flowers and you're going to, you know, you know, shake that. And then when you're done, patients are like, well, now I want to use some more fresh flour. And so they, they get more fresh, fresh flour and then they pour the already extracted into ethanol over that. And then they always ask me, how many times can we do that? At what point is the ethanol saturated? And so um, I'm not even sure if I'm using the right vocabulary here, um, but but I think you know where I'm going. Can you explain? Yeah. Can you explain how to think about when you know that your ethanol is saturated and and you really should not soak it anymore, and and that product is done? So with our cold finger process, where you can just redistill clear alcohol through the the material over and over again, you can make extremely concentrated. Uh, tinctures that you know literally what chemists call bomb out like it gets so saturated that it can't stay in the solution anymore and it just starts to fall to the bottom of the extractor and you can or if you put it in a bottle you'll see that it's all bombing out and there's just piles of you know resin or oil down in the bottom um you're, you're never going to get that from just pouring cold ethanol over you know making tink the typical way or the common way of of tincturing uh, just getting into herbal tradition is, you know, whatever jar of herb you have, you pour ethanol in it till, you know, it's an inch or two above the plant material and you shake it up. And that's supposed to be the extraction right there. If, you know, let's say in, with, with cannabis, you know, doing that method, you probably got, you know, an 80 or 90% of the oil out extraction. If you, if you take that tincture and dump it over fresh material again, your yield is going to be a lot less the second time around. I would think it's going to be more, you know, 60%, 70% maybe. And that number is going to keep going down. So I would say, um, you know, if your cannabis is very abundant and you don't care, you could do it two or three times. But, you know, each time you do that, you're going to, you're going to pull less of the cannabinoids you're looking for in the terpenes. Um, from that next batch and the batch after that, it's going to keep dropping 10 or 20%, I would think. So in a perfect world, you'd love a, you know, a, this person that we're talking about would want a, uh, would want a solution where either um, they do one wash and then they, you know, uh, distill off the alcohol and then they do another wash and then they, so that essentially you're doing one-to-one for your, for your maximum yield or, if somebody is doing it more at scale, your cold finger is actually doing that whole thing for you in a closed loop. Yeah, it is. I, and I still think for people that want really strong tinctures, that the cold finger is the best, me- best method. And, and, and I know people who have businesses um, that just do that. You know, it's it's not a real commonplace thing, especially here in Washington. They, they don't allow alcohol-based tinctures, so they're, they're, there's no business. But 
I, I mean, I just know people who, you know, they might be gray market, you might say, but uh, they're using cold fingers to extract cannabis. And then they, they do uh, a carbon filtration, drop the wax out and then just sell the product like that. And it's, it's a very nice product because if you do it right, you know, you haven't, if you're not redistilling ethanol back out and you let the cold finger cool down before you open it up after an extraction, your terpene profile is completely intact. So you're getting a full spectrum, whole plant extract. And what the, you know, the, the real tincture heads have noticed is that different strains have a particular taste, but that's dependent on getting all the wax and the chlorophyll out. And then that brings out the bouquet and, uh, you know, people that are really into it, you know, they can they can smell a tincture and have a good idea which strain that is. Mm-hmm. So, so this show is very much um, whole plant based, and um, and so we we hold up ethanol as as essentially being the gold standard for cannabis medicine, right? For for rec, you know, there's a lot of other things that people may prefer, but but for a, for a patient that we want to get them the widest range of cannabinoids with the widest spectrum of terpenes, you know, ethanol seems to be the way to go. That said. I'm curious to know from your experience, what are we still losing from the plant when we do an ethanol extraction? I'm sure that there's something that we're losing that we may want. Uh, what, what, what might not make it through the ethanol extraction process that's valuable to us, to patients? So the monoterpenes are going to evaporate off very easily. So when you, when you redistill or, or uh, flash off uh, the ethanol from a hash oil extraction, you're going to lose those monoterpenes, which are pretty important to that, you know, entourage effect. So the method I was talking about earlier, where you, you do the cold finger extraction, let the unit cool down. So there's not going to be a bunch of vapor coming off when you open it up and then pour that off, carbon filter it and drop the wax out. That the terpene profile will, will be intact. But if you're, if you're, distilling off the ethanol you're gonna you know you'll probably still have some sesquiterpenes which are going to lose monoterpenes um so just you know if you don't mind me making a little pitch for our products our our modern day uh commercial extractor distillers that we do for cold ethanol and all kinds of other things they can be configured to do steam distilling so you could steam distill your cannabis first get your essential oils or monoterpenes then uh you know, spin the water out with a centrifuge and uh, put it back in there and ethanol extract it, then refine out the chlorophyll and the wax and add those terpenes back to it. And, and you've got a very, you know, full spectrum extract that has only the things you want in it. Right on. Um, so I've got a, a, a question about uh, treat, treating the, the, the ethanol hash oil after the extraction. Some people will say that ethanol extraction can provide everything that the the modern cannabis market is looking for, from the from the EHO to dabs to viscous liquid for pens, um, and and I you know I I'm not a professional extractor, so I don't know what after extraction processes would need to be done to do that. But it seems that that might be a little overstated. Um, what are your thoughts? Can ethanol do it all, or do we really need the the whole range of of CO two and BHO for these different products that that people are enjoying in the modern cannabis market? Generally speaking, you know, because the, the 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 main market now is vape pens, and I really think the best vape pens are where you 
you know, run a CO2 unit. And it takes, you know, some talent to do that. To, to do make good CO2 oil takes, you know, talent and artistic ability. There's a lot of cruddy CO2 oil out there. But if you if you do the terpene pull, which is, you know, they jump out really early and you make that terp sauce and then put set that aside, you know, drain it out or squirt it out and then finish the extraction and refine you know, all the cannabinoids down and, and add that early turt pull back. Yeah, that's that's the best way to make a, a tasty full spectrum, you know, vape pen product. Most of the the only good the only good vape pen products that I've had that were ethanol is where they um they short path the ethanol extract and get it to like pure cannabinoids. And then, you know, they had the terpenes at, added back in, whether they steam distilled it or they bought terpenes from, you know, Ben at True Terpenes or something like that. But yeah, that that's the only time I've seen a good ethanol vape pen is, a, you know, a distilled, you know, clear that's like 95% cannabinoids with terpenes added back in. I mean, most of the vape pens I've seen that were kind of less refined ethanol extracts were pretty nasty tasting. Um, and then I've seen really good ethanol shatter, which is, you know, basically you have to be able to see the ethanol coming through the product. And, and, and when you see, when it starts to change color and get darker, you pull that away. You only, you know, you, you want to get the very first, you know, kind of like the first press of olive oil, you know, is the, the best oil, the virgin oil and kind of like the terp sauce with CO2, but, you know, with cold ethanol, you needed to see it passing through and what color it is. And, you know, while it's still a bright, pretty golden, that's the stuff that can be turned into shatter and, and it'll have a real nice taste to it. It's interesting that you mentioned olive oil because when you, when you were talking earlier about how uh, using CO2 extraction for the vape pen market uh, to do it properly it takes more than just an understanding of how the CO2 extractor work. It actually takes uh, a, a depth of knowledge and artistry. And, and who came to mind was uh, uh, our mutual friend, uh, Jeff Church, um, presently over at, uh, at Puffin Farms. And, and he, they, you know, they, 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 they push this term uh, EVFO, extra virgin flower oil. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, the product that they make is, is top of the market, right? It, it doesn't taste like these, you know, like these, uh, you know, hot dog water, you know, soupy pens of distillate and stuff. It's got a, it's got a depth of flavor that you don't get anywhere. Just like when you see, you know, any kind of artisan put out a product and you're like, you're like, damn, this is, this is very much better than all the other stuff I've ever had. I think that idea of a, of a first pressing of an olive oil, uh, versus, you know, a, an extra version cannabis oil is, is apt. Yeah. So, yeah, props to Jeff and Sam back in the day for they were the first people to figure out to how to how to get a pure terp or a yeah pure terpene run with CO two, and um, one of the earliest terp festivals, uh, you know Jeff entered that product and it was a, a pure terpene CO two, and there were people that wanted to disqualify him because they said it can't be done that you're you're lying you did something. And uh, we pushed really hard and, and got that turned around and they got the award. And, and uh, yeah, they were the first to do it. or the first I'm aware of uh, that were able to do it. And, you know, now it's I wouldn't call it common now, but there's certainly a lot more people doing that. But, uh, yeah, Jeff and Sam 
to yeah. my knowledge, were the first to figure it out. I remember, I remember that year of the Tur Festival and 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 all of the kind of drama around it on awards right. night and Jeff's poor broken heart, right? Because like, yeah, Je- you know, Jeff worked his ass off to develop this technique, and for them to say that you're disqualified because what you did isn't possible. Um, that's pretty, that's pretty groundbreaking. <laughs> yeah. And, and from our point of view in the very early CO2 days, you know, there were always those who wanted to knock CO2, especially, you know, the BHO that, you know, it's kind of a competition there and, uh, people would say, ah, CO2 sucks. It doesn't get any terpenes. And then five or six years later, the insult is, ah, CO2 is only good for terpenes. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's so, so yeah, clearly CO2 and the extractor people, you know, the extraction artists, if you will, themselves, they've evolved a lot too, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the early days, you guys had to do a lot of training of extraction teams just so that they could use your, 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 you know, extraction machines properly. So they didn't give you guys a bad name because of the machine. Uh, but nowadays that, um, you know, that insight is, is a lot more available. Um, so in that same idea as, uh, you know, the, the, the evolution of it. So, so, you know, each big evolution in technology opens up like new markets and creates new products. What do you see as a coming evolution in extraction tech that will create new market opportunities? And, and you don't, it doesn't have to be ethanol either. I mean, your Eden labs produces an entire range of extraction equipment from CO2 to BHO to ethanol. So, you know, as the R and D guy, there trying to push the envelope. What do you see coming down the pipe that that might open up new doors in the industry for new products? So we actually figured this out quite a few years ago, but uh, you know, for various reasons, we didn't we didn't push it too much at the time. But we're going to start promoting the concept of adding a small amount of propane to CO2 because it's, it's kind of, well, what was explained to me, um, the guys who do the large scale short pathing, mostly right now they're using ethanol extracts and, and you know, the ethanol, the advantage to the ethanol is you can just do such large scale, you know, quickly and, and affordably. But a lot of the, the refiners, you know, they, they don't like the ethanol because there's so many, they have to do many passes and there's, there's always problems with uh, different kinds of particulate that are in there and uh, ethanol that, you know, they might have to do one or two passes just to get residual ethanol out. And so what I'm told, I'm not a short path guy myself, but I, I certainly have good friends that are, and they like, they like hydrocarbon extracts and they like CO2 extracts as far as what they like to refine with. But, you know, the CO2, they believe, is too slow of a process. And the hydrocarbon has, you know, the flammability risks and the liability risks and the regulatory risks. So we know that we can add a small amount of of propane to CO2 and it will and, and, and the extraction will be as fast as with just pure hydrocarbon but it won't be flammable. There's not enough propane in because the CO2 represses that. And, you know, even if the system were to leak badly, both gases stay mixed and, and settle on the floor 
And we, we know for a fact that, you know, with that can, we can do this in a way that it's not flammable and it's, it extracts us very, very quickly and efficiently. And, um, it's, it's been requested that, you know, we start pushing this and bring this to market. So it's, it's the next thing uh, we're going to push. And I, I already know that, you know, there's other, there's starting to be a buzz out there. You know, we've got a couple competitors that are also uh, pushing that. And, um, you know, we know John McKay's mentioned it a few times in public. So we, we, we don't know for sure because, um, you know, these trends, you know, take a momentum of their own, but it, it makes sense that this could become, you know, a new method, especially for people who want to do refining. Right on. Well, thank you for sharing that. You know, it's interesting. I bet you that the idea of mixing propane with CO2 just kind of blew a bunch of minds. People are like, no way. I need to know more about that. And uh, that's what keeps this exciting, right? Is that, yeah. is that um, you know, the people who are really into it, who have got a, a blend of engineering, science, and, you know, passionate vision, they continually push this. And, and that's why we find all these great new technological solutions. Um, and with that, so thank you for spending some time with us, Fritz. You know, I know that you're not usually the guy who's out talking. It's usually AC Braddock from, from, um, from Eden Labs. But the fact that you were willing to, you know, come out of your, your, your laboratory and spend some time with us to, you know, give us a taste of some of the history from the early days uh, up to what, you, what you're seeing happening right now uh, is very kind of you. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Shango. It was fun. Awesome. Uh, if you want to find out more about Eden Labs, you can go directly to their website at EdenLabs.com. And you can also fo follow their interesting Instagram also at Eden Labs. Um, if you want to hear more about Eden Labs and about their CO2 extractors and about how the reputation and abilities of CO2 extraction has changed, uh, you can go back to Shaping Fire episode 19, where I talked to Eden Labs' A.C. Braddock uh, about uh, the new uh, expansions of the technology. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolose.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose. <laughs>